We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness today is Tara Blair Ball, who's a certified relationship coach. We're going to talk about attachment theory, which is a useful way to understand your relationships, and in particular, why you or someone you love blows hot and cold. Tara is the author of two books, The Beginning of the End, which is a memoir about the implosion of her first marriage, and Stop Wasting Your Time on Women Who Don't Want You. She blogs and offers courses at her website, Happy Loving. She's happily remarried and has twins from her first marriage, a stepdaughter, and Tara and her second husband have a daughter together. So welcome to The Meaningful Life. Why do you find attachment theory so helpful? So generally, when we deal with attachment theory, we're thinking about and addressing why we pick the partners we do, what feels normal to us, you know, why we keep having the same issues over and over again. And attachment theory is just one way of explaining why and how to address it. So I always think about what is the common denominator? And I and anyone else is a common denominator in their relationship choices. And so it that's what it ends up coming down to is how do we address our own part in the relationships we choose and why we keep choosing ones that seem so similar. And it's very easy to say, well, the problem with A was this and the problem with right. B was that and the problem right. with C was this. But actually, that just stops you looking at yourself. Right. And that's the difficult part. But this is a very, very good way of understanding yourself and other people. And it's really one of the building blocks of better relationships. So I'm really thrilled that we're going to talk about it today. So give me a little bit of history. How did this attachment theory come together? So attachment theory in general started as research with children because they were trying to understand why children reacted in different ways to their parent and caregivers leaving. So some children would be completely disinterested in whether their parent was gone or present. Some children would react with throwing temper tantrums and other kinds of fits because their parent left, but then they would also throw fits when their parent or caregiver returned. And then some children were upset when their parent left and then felt assured when their parent returned. So they were trying to sort of come up with a reason why these children were reacting the way that they did in situations. And then they started connecting it to how the parent attached with the child and how that influenced their reaction to their parent leaving. And then when they followed those individuals in certain studies, they found that those patterns and attachment in their romantic relationships just continued. Yes. And I think this is really important to understand is our very first ever relationship with our mother, father, or principal caregiver is going to be the blueprint for the rest of all of our relationships. Yeah, sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if people say this to you too. I mean, it was a long time ago. Right. I've moved on. I'm a different person. I mean, what do you say to that? Are you really? (laughs) (laughs) 
I believe in a lot in that phrase, wherever you go, there you are. Mm-hmm. You know, we keep taking ourselves into every relationship. And if we don't address those kinds of attachment issues, that will influence the partners we select, how we relate to those partners, how we share with those partners. And it just continues until we work on healing that aspect in ourselves. There are four attachment styles. Let's start with the good news, first of all. This is called secure attachment. So why does a baby attach securely? So your parent was likely consistently present. You know, they reassured you, they calmed you, they were affectionate with you, attentive. When they left, you know, they were to make sure to connect with you before they left. And as soon as they returned, they connected with you as well. They had appropriate boundaries. They taught you how to have appropriate boundaries. They enforced them. They communicated and expressed emotions. And it was okay for you also as a child to communicate and express emotions. I found interesting that in research, it says that 60% of the population has secure attachment, which I feel is so high. But maybe that's just my personal experience and my clients. I just felt like that was insanely high. (laughs) It could be that our clients are self-selecting and the people who become therapists are (laughs) self-selecting. Very likely. Now, a good way I, I find of describing it is I was once walking my dog and there was a slight hill and this child was running down the hill and they were running a little bit faster than their legs could carry them. And you know what happens then? They fall over and they cry. Mm-hmm. Now, so with each of these different attachment styles, we'll think of what might produce each type of attachment. So in a secure attachment, what do you think the mother would do under those circumstances? Well, calm, reassure, but also not allow it to continue. Children can fall into attention-seeking behavior, so they might hyperbolize their hurt. But she'd calm and assure and then get the child righted and back to to what the child was doing. Pick the child up, kiss Mm -hmm. it better. But it would be in a calm kind of way. There would be no Mm -hmm. hysteria about it. And the child soon calms down and they go merrily on their way and, you know, the therapist walking past wouldn't notice. Right. So that's secure attachment. You feel that the people around are looking out for you and that everything in the world is good and secure. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Yes. Now, <laughs> so it's all, but it's all downhill from here. Right, right. <laughs> the next one is called ambivalent or fearful. We're going to call it ambivalent. Why should somebody be ambivalent about their attachments? So these are parents that weren't necessarily consistent, so they weren't always available. So these children might be extremely anxious and clingy, but they may also push away their caregivers and even be aggressive towards them because they understand that they can't rely on their caregivers and they don't trust intimate relationships because These are often relationships where there's some kind of trauma involved as well, but generally the child can't rely on the parent. The parent is sometimes there, sometimes not. Sometimes it's good when they're there. Sometimes it's bad when they're there. They're constantly fearful because of that. And I think the parents themselves are often quite anxious people too, and it gets communicated to the children too. So back to the hill and the child running down, the parent then can think, oh my gosh, a car could have come, you could have been knocked over. And they're actually making the upset even greater. Right. I think the difficult part is the child never quite knows how the parent is going to react. And Mm -hmm. that's what creates the ambivalence. Then we come on to what is called preoccupied 
So tell me about that. So these are parents that are extremely unpredictable and inconsistent. Often these parents might be abusive as well, but these children end up developing a fear of closeness with their parents. So they are likely to avoid the parent outright and just generally have a lack of trust of caregivers or other sort of authority figures such as teachers or babysitters or that kind of stuff. But they just generally are pulled towards in themselves. Like they just feel that uncomfortable with the aspect of the relationship with a caregiver. And in this case, the child could actually be scolded for running off. You know, I've told you a hundred times before that that's dangerous. Don't be so stupid or Mm -hmm. don't make a big fuss about it. It's nothing. Right, exactly. So you can see why you wouldn't feel very secure that you're going to get help under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. And it's it's going downhill, really, isn't it? Right. It's just getting worse. <laughs> because the last version is called avoidant. Yeah. So these are children with parents that are abusive, neglectful. They just aren't very present in any way, whether it's physical or emotional. And so the children are generally expected to sort of take care of themselves. So this would be, in your situation, Andrew, this would be a situation where like the child would fall down and not even expect anyone to come out and talk to them or make them feel better. They just would assume that it's just not going to happen. Or not quite so bad, the parents on the telephone, busy talking to somebody else, say, hang on a second, or might not Mm -hmm. even have noticed because they're busy doing something else. Mm -hmm. So the child isn't going to make much fuss because no help is going to come. Yeah. And when I was looking at your notes, on your website, I came across a beautiful diagram that I thought was really good. I'll see if we can actually put this in the show notes, but for people to imagine like a compass with north, south, west, and east. And if you put on the top in north, low avoidance, and you put south, high avoidance, and then on the west-east axis, you put low anxiety, and on the other end, high anxiety in the east. So you've actually got four squares. And if you put secure in the top left, so you've got low avoidance and low anxiety. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Let's go across the top. So in the top right-hand corner, we have preoccupied. So you have low avoidance and high anxiety. So people really want these relationships, but the problem is they come with a lot of anxiety as well. That's why it's called preoccupied. Mm -hmm. Let's go down to the bottom right now. We've got high avoidance and high anxiety. No wonder you would be avoidant, because if something's going to give you a lot of anxiety, (laughs) you would have high avoidance, wouldn't you? Right. Do you ever actually see any clients who are avoidant? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. They are often dragged in by their partner, though. I'll say that. So the partner is wanting them to be, you know, more present. Avoidance and anxious attachment people generally tend to date. So the anxious person is trying to cling on to them and sort of bring them in and the avoidant is just fleeing the whole time. Uh, But the avoidant can have periods of sort of drawing the anxious attachment in, you know, because they desire closeness like anyone, but it also is very frightening. So they end up pushing it away or sabotaging it too. And then in the bottom left, we have ambivalent. So we have high avoidance and you have low anxiety because you're not actually engaging a huge amount. Mm -hmm. So how do we spot where we belong? In terms of our romantic relationships, there are definitely signs for each of the attachments in which you may involve. So keeping in mind of the signs, you know, 
So for example, preoccupied, these are people who pursue relationships continually. You know, these might be our serial monogamous or serial daters, but when they're in relationships, they keep their guards up. They struggle with trusting. They also tend to sabotage, push away, or break up with their partners. And then they consistently feel unlovable and unworthy of love, which also means that they may put up with inappropriate behavior because of that. What often happens is sometimes, whereas most people, when somebody behaves badly, they think, actually, it's probably not a good idea to be in this relationship. People who are in the preoccupied section actually Instead of raising their boundaries, they lower them and allow that person to effectively walk all over them in the hope that they'll get back to the good times again. Yes, exactly. Our ambivalent people, these move too quickly in relationships. Oh, right. Tell me about that. So they might likely begin relationships and very quickly try to move to, they move so quickly that they don't necessarily know the person, they don't know about them. They're sort of running into the relationship, ignoring red flags as they go. But on top of that, they often tend to assume negative things about their partner. They become overly devastated when the relationship ends. They require a ton of affirmation and assurance, which makes sense for how they feel. They can also be jealous and controlling. And then they often push loved ones away when they worry about abandonment and become preoccupied with breakups. And they perceive any sort of healthy boundaries as a threat to the relationship. So if a partner is trying to express or set and enforce boundaries. They see that as a threat to the relationship and to them. Mm. And what about the avoidant? The avoidant. <laughs> Avoidance, you know, can go long periods of time with being single. You know, why would they be in a relationship? They struggle the most when relationships become more intimate or more serious. So they will struggle as any relationship progresses. They'll sabotage, withdraw. They will feel like relationships are too suffocating. They might describe their partners as too needy or clingy. Even when their partners are expressing just reasonable needs, they will think that they're too needy. They'll deliberately start fights as a way to create distance. And they'll often choose inappropriate people to partner with. So emotionally unavailable people, which makes sense. If we're unavailable, we're probably going to seek out someone who's also unavailable. But there is something that keeps everybody in the game. And I think this is really important because whenever I talk to people about this, they say, oh, yes, but I'm not avoidant because when I find the right person, everything will be fine. And in fact... Oh, I hate that. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I used to say my one ambition in life, which is a hopeless ambition, was to get rid of the idea of soul partners. Mm -hmm. But soul partners is sort of, unfortunately, what makes the merry-go-round of attachment styles go round. The secure people are not, you know, they like love, don't we all? But they're not relying on it as a magic cure. They're not waiting to find the one person in the world that they will fit with. Because once you find that person, you're not going to be avoidant because this is the one. You're not Mm -hmm. going to be fearful anymore. You're not going to be anxious. It's all going to be wonderful. Now, now. (laughs) explain to me why that is all completely (laughs) utterly bonkers. I've always loved this phrase and I heard it years ago. It's called water finds its own level. And it's very similar to birds of a feather flock together. So Mm -hmm. If I am not a perfect person, if I am having all of these attachment issues, all of these other insecurities, trust issues, whatever it may be, I am not actually going to be attracted to someone who would be a healthy person because that would be uncomfortable, unfamiliar, abnormal for me. There's not going to be a perfect person that's going to 
fix my issues. It's going to have to be me that fixes my issues. And this is something I deal with a lot. People think, oh, it's just my partner's fault. They blame the partner. But in reality, we chose them and we chose them for a reason. And whatever that reason may be, you know, there are theories that we choose people to help us heal. So we choose whatever it might be. They might have a similar issue to a parent. You know, people talk about daddy issues, parent issues. In myself, I found myself when I was dealing with insecure attachment, I would seek out partners that I thought I could change and fix, and we would have a lovely relationship. But how did that work out? (laughs) That did not work out at all. (laughs) We cannot love someone out of their red flags. We just can't. Uh, We can try really hard, but often at a detriment to ourselves. So why do you think you were attracted to people who in some way were sort of almost unavailable? So I was very commitment phobic, actually. And there's actually, I can't remember which type it is. I think it's the ambivalent. I would call them pursuant commitment phobics. They think that they are not commitment phobic, but they continually choose people that are not appropriate for them to have relationships with. So that's just another type of commitment phobia, because if you truly wanted a relationship with someone, you would choose someone who was an appropriate partner, who also wanted a romantic relationship with you. Yet I kept pursuing these relationships with people that didn't have the same goals or visions or didn't have character traits that I would want in someone. Again, I thought I I could change them. I could fix them and make them... If you're putting your cards on the table, I'll put my cards on the table. A long time ago, before I really understood relationships, I was in the ambivalent section. My speciality was hooking up with people who lived at least one time zone away from me. (laughs) So you could be very close for a short space of time. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, with a tear in your eye, you could wave goodbye to them on Sunday night without actually having to see them again for another two (laughs) weeks or something like that. There's good news, isn't there? If you don't fit in the secure attachment department, you can become securely attached. Would you describe yourself now as securely attached to your second husband? Yes. But I will say that that secure attachment started before we got in the relationship. So I strongly believe that's how it has to happen is we have to work on secure attachment with ourselves before we find a partner to securely attach to. So the answer is not, oh, well, actually, it's very easy. I just find somebody who's securely attached and then I'll become (laughs) securely attached too. No. I have read attachment theory dating books that basically in a a nutshell say that don't buy them. It would be unfair of me to mention the title of, but anyway, how did you go from, I mean, your first marriage, if people want to read about it, I mean, it was a car crash, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. A 10-year-long one. The longest car crash ever. (laughs) (laughs) He was uh, an addict, even though you thought he was cleaned up, and you had an affair. So it was not pretty. No, no. It was very messy and annihilating for a lot of that time. It was abusive. It was it was all of that. Which departments do you think the two of you were in? You were you ambivalent or avoidant or preoccupied? I was ambivalent. He was avoidant. Oh. Yeah. What joy. <laughs> I know. What a what a wonderful, wonderful situation. But that's actually the time period that I became a certified relationship coach, which is funny. But I was doing all of this work to improve our relationship. And I I was an expert. We were going to get better. <laughs> Didn't you know? I mean, we did you know, couples retreats, couples intensives, read books, followed popular advice. 
But I had to learn the hard way that a relationship isn't one-sided. Both people have to be willing to put that work in. And I, I was putting that work in, assuming I was the problem. And I really wasn't. He'd been hiding his drug addiction for eight something years. And I was practicing denial, completely oblivious until I actually found drugs in my house. So there's no way to carry a relationship by yourself. There's just not. So although it wasn't, I hate this word, your fault, and you weren't to blame, you did have work to do on yourself. It wasn't a case of just dump the loser and find somebody better. (laughs) It's it's amazing how easily these words trip off our tongues, isn't it? Yes. It's not as easy as that. You had to do some... And I actually do take fault for that relationship. Mm -hmm. I'll say that. Because I... There were red flags that I ignored. There was so much that I put up with that I shouldn't have. And I know that today, but that's the beauty of hindsight, right? Hindsight's twenty twenty. So what did you do? How do you move into secure? Depending on your attachment style, there's slightly different ways to move into secure attachment. It's always suggested that you work with a mental health counselor or a therapist when moving toward, because you're literally dealing with very deep-seated issues. And often we're also dealing with some kind of trauma. And so we are needing to find help. So specifically for each type, they're a little different. I definitely recommend... But I think with all of them, the very first Mm -hmm. step is to actually recognize the dance that you're doing, the dance of intimacy. What is the pattern? It's perfectly possible, and this is the slightly confusing thing, we've shoved people into just four categories. And it's a little bit more complicated than that. And it's possible to be preoccupied in one relationship where you're the one who's doing the pursuing, and it's possible to be dismissive or avoidant in the other one. I often see this people sort of flip-flop. You know, They either go with somebody who looks good on paper and they have no chemistry with, and it goes absolutely nowhere. And then they go for somebody they have a lot of chemistry with, but the chemistry is down to the fact they're pursuing and the other person's fleeing. Mm -hmm. And then they swap over and they date a nice guy and they're the one that's moving away and the nice guy is pursuing. So it is possible to mix around, isn't it? But generally, we have a core way of doing things. And we'll do it mostly in our most important or longest romantic relationships. It will be the same way it's repeated often. Right. So with that proviso that it's possible to swap around a bit and play different roles in the dance. And the dance is basically flee and pursue really, isn't it? Because if you have two people who are fleeing, there's no relationship. Right. And actually, if you have two people who are both chasing each other, there comes a point where one of them starts running away. Mm -hmm. Yes. So let's do the preoccupied people. These are the ones who feel they can never quite get close enough. I work with a lot of preoccupied clients. And the first part is assessing the people that we have in our life. So preoccupied people generally have in a lot of their close relationships, whether it's friends or romantic partners, they choose emotionally unavailable people, people who are not going to express their emotions. I mean, it makes sense that you would constantly keep your guard up if you're around people who are not sharing and intimate in their own way. So finding people that you feel safe with, being able to express your emotions, whether they're just friends or romantic partners. And I talk a lot about affirmations with my clients. I just 
all of the research is, I mean, you know this, like affirmations can really change how we view ourselves, how we speak to ourselves. And so people with this particular issue need to really focus on affirming that, you know, they're worthy and deserving of love. They're, you know, lovable, that they choose trustworthy people to be in relationship with because these people don't trust themselves. Even if they are pursuing partners, they don't trust whoever that they are choosing. And that comes down to their ability to trust themselves. Right. What else do you suggest? I mean, I'm going to tell everybody work with a mental health counselor, but getting into this space of being able to reflect on why you're doing something. So any kind of reflective exercises, whether it be journaling, recording voice memos, practicing meditation and mindfulness, these kinds of things, you're sort of needing to get into asking yourself, why am I doing this? You know, or giving yourself time to assess, is this person okay for me to share with? Or why am I wanting to pursue this relationship so intensely? And also, it might be a good idea for these particular individuals to have some time being single. These people constantly are in relationships with someone, or they often have people on the back burner. So they always have someone set up. So taking some time to be single and reflect during that time. And I think a lot of the things that you're talking about is actually about learning how to soothe yourself. Yes. Because what you're hoping is that if you pursue or you go dramatic, that your boyfriend, girlfriend is going to come along, give you a great big hug and tell you everything's okay with the world. Mm -hmm. The problem is as you pursue them, they run away and you're actually told or given the message that everything's bad with the world. But go straight to the heart, you know, the meditation, the having a long bath, looking after yourself, that little bit of soothing takes away a little bit of the anxiety. And that makes you less likely to pursue. And if you're in a, a long-term relationship, you've got children, so it's just not as easy to say goodbye. If you soothe yourself and expect your partner to soothe you less, he or she might retreat less and the relationship can improve in that kind of way. I love the idea of journaling in particular. So thank you for that. How's about if you're avoidant? Oh, my avoidance. These are similar. So choosing an appropriate people. So reflecting on and taking steps. You know, avoidance are going to generally try to avoid relationships in general, yet they still find themselves in them. So making sure you're not being with inappropriate people you know, not choosing in that aspect to do that. Again, working with a mental health counselor, I'm going to just repeat that over and over again. But these people need to work on assessing what their normal is and recognizing that their normal isn't right. Your normal is skewed. So when they assume that a partner is being needy or clingy or suffocating, that that's not necessarily a reality. Because that's what ends up happening is they feel suffocated by any kind of intimacy, even if it's reasonable or rational. And so assessing and focusing on getting a new kind of normal, you know, my partner is not being needy or clingy or suffocating. They are actually just asking to spend time with me because they love me, that kind of thing. And again, like you mentioned, like it's a lot about self-soothing. So when we get anxious about being too close intimately with someone, being able to remind ourselves that this is okay, it is safe, I'm with a safe person, and talking back to that anxiety. Some of my clients name their anxiety or name their intimacy issues. Like they give it literally a separate name to try to talk to. I have a client who calls hers Georgia. She's like, Georgia, you don't need to react that way. In Georgia, it's okay. And it's a funny way to sort of approach it if anybody's interested in doing that for themselves. Mm -hmm. But it is about getting in mind, you know, that my normal isn't necessarily reality. 
you know, that feelings aren't facts. Just because I feel frightened or scared in this, that doesn't mean that I'm in an unsafe situation. And I think the the question, I think this is a good question for everybody, what could I do differently? Because it's very easy to come up with a long list of what your partner could do differently. But what could I do differently? Because after all, we can't control our partner, but we can control ourselves. So what Mm -hmm. can I do differently? Then we come on to the ambivalent corner. What about the ambivalence? Any advice for them? Yes. So ambivalence, I mean, all the attachment theories need to work on boundaries, but ambivalent people need to work on their boundaries the most because they often ignore them in a hopes of achieving closeness. So I will ignore these red flags about this person because they are going to give me an intimate relationship and that's what I truly want. So having appropriate boundaries and healthy boundaries are necessary in a relationship. And they might be as simple as, you know, I have my own private space, you have your own private space. I need time to develop relationships and keep relationships with my friends, hobbies, interests. You know, we give each other time and space and we allow each other to have our feelings. We don't try to fix each other. Those are simple boundaries that aren't necessarily normal to those in this attachment style because they move so quickly into relationships that they skip all of those steps. Actually, I I have a prayer that I've taught some of my clients, which is, I am me and you are you. It's a miracle that we've found each other, but I'm responsible for my feelings and you're responsible for your feelings. And that takes a huge amount of pressure off and it stops us or stops them from being so tied up with each other. And then we get either an explosion, well, normally an explosion and then a a parting. It's really important because if you don't have secure attachment, you, as you say, have very poor boundaries. And my prayer is about getting good boundaries. I am me, you are you. It's a miracle we've come together, but I'm responsible for my feelings, which is, I have to say, more than enough work to be going on with, and mm-hmm. you're responsible for your feelings. Thank goodness, get on with it. And the pressure comes off at that point. Mm-hmm. Any other suggestions for the ambivalent yeah. people? So these are also people that need to work on anxiety piece as well. Oh, another thing I wanted to mention was moving too quickly in relationships. Mm-hmm. Often people in these attachment styles rush into relationships because they feel like if they vomit all of their deepest, darkest offals and the other person also vomits all their deepest, darkest offals, that that is intimacy. But intimacy oh. is earned. When you drink a drink, you take just sips at a time. You don't just drink it all down like a hot cup of coffee. So I suggest sharing sips of your life with someone instead of throwing the whole cup of coffee in their face. Have you been out for brunch on Sunday and you've seen a couple that sort of can't keep their hands off each other at the, <laughs> at the table? I mean, they're literally entwined in each other and you know the waiter has to come three times to actually ask them what it is they want to eat. And you sort of know, possibly, that they're wearing the clothes from yesterday sort of kind right. of thing. <laughs> is that what you're talking about? Yes, yes, similar to that, yes. And I actually... I read this tweet recently that made a lot of sense. Like, I want the love of a healthy relationship with the sex of a toxic one. And uh, <laughs> and that's totally relatable to a lot of us. That enmeshment, that forgetting yourself, falling into a relationship can feel so exhilarating and thrilling. But it's just another type of high, just another type of drug euphoria that isn't sustainable, isn't good for us. You know, it's like a shot of heroin, not necessarily good for us. (laughs) 
So how do you know what is the right pace to go? So a lot of different coaches have theories. I have a mentor figure who believes that uh, you should not kiss for the first three months that you are dating. (laughs) I do not agree with that at all. I think if you don't kiss for three months, bye-bye. Right. So it's often an individual process of figuring out what's too quickly for you, what's not. I don't have any rigid plans just because I know for myself individually is I tried to follow a rigid plan with my ex-husband because we were going to have a healthy relationship. We waited to have sex until we exchanged I love yous, all of that, thinking that we had found the right formula. I don't believe that there's a right formula for any relationship. What I do believe is that When we do our own work and work on ourselves, we kind of date ourselves. You know, we kind of learn who we are, what we want, what we value. And then we can apply that same timeline to a healthy relationship and figuring out like, I am comfortable sharing this. You know, I feel safe sharing this and that this is a person I believe is safe and know is safe. And until we get there, then we're just sort of rushing through those boundaries and avoiding or ignoring red flags along the way. And if you decide to go on the second date with a removal van, you're probably moving just a little bit too quickly. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe just a thought. But I don't believe in magic timelines. You know, I, I have clients who are like, I should wait until the third or fifth date to have sex. I don't even believe in that. But it does require a lot of self awareness on the part of whoever is dating. So I think the number one thing is to have a good sense of your own emotions and where you are, because Mm -hmm. often you get tipped into the bad elements of all of this behavior because you've been ignoring your feelings for too long and then you explode. And ignoring boundaries, yes. And you can actually ask for what it is you want. Now, this is a bit of a revelation to some people, but actually, if you're feeling overwhelmed, You know, you can walk around the block, you can go off to the corner shop and buy a box of matches. You don't have to be together all the time. If you need a bit of alone time, you can ask for it and negotiate it rather than trying to grab it. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Now, one of the advantages of joining my supporters circle is you can write in letters that I will discuss with my witnesses here on The Meaningful Life. And we've got one that I think Tara is going to be able to help us with. My husband says I don't respect him. I'm completely baffled because everything I do is for him and our family. We both have busy jobs, which can leave us a bit frazzled, and a three-year-old daughter too, so we're juggling all the time. When I've asked him what he means by respect, he says I can be critical and jump down his throat. I've tried to bite my tongue, but sometimes he'll be doing something wrong, or it would be simpler for all of us if he did something another way. I haven't said this to him, but sometimes I wonder if he respects me too. He has this look on his face that says, whatever, like he's humoring me. Are we just overloaded? I can feel exhausted on Monday morning before the week has even begun. Do we need to cut each other some slack or is it something more important that's going on? So what do you think, Tara? So there's a book by Dr. Emerson Egeritz called Love and Respect. And I suggest to clients with a very, very take what you like and leave the rest attitude. The book is very Christian, and I find the book to be rather sexist as well. 
But what he posits is that men want unconditional respect and women want unconditional love. And I've had many clients, both men and women, who actually really value what Egeritz would call unconditional respect. So what is unconditional respect? He has specific ways of assessing if this is what your partner wants. But unconditional respect is in the sense of how we all talk about unconditional love. So the sense that we are loved regardless of what we do. And he believes that men want to be unconditionally respected regardless of what they do, which pretty much sticks down to not criticizing, not nagging, being very clear and specific in when we want to address our partners and continually saying to them like, I respect you. I love that you do this. I respect you so much. That their male partners would prefer to hear that than anything. He actually has a test in the book that I recommend to clients if they want to see if their partner is interested in this. But he suggests you come up with a list of things that you greatly appreciate about your partner. And then you go to your partner and you say, I've been thinking about all the things that you've been doing. And I just wanted you to know that I respect you. And then walk away and see what the partner's reaction to that is. If the partner has a positive reaction or wants you to share what those things are with them, then they likely are desiring you to unconditionally respect them. I will say it's something I've used in my own marriage. And oh, that's right. helpful. Give me an example of how it's worked for you. This was actually, it's funny when I read the letter because this was a conversation that my husband and I had early on when we got married. Is he said, I feel like you don't respect me. Oh. I too was super confused by that. I was like, how could I not respect you? I I love you. Right. I love you. I'm faithful to you. I, I cook and clean. <laughs> right. Like, how could you think that? But he does not feel respected if I criticize things that he does. I have to be very mindful of how I say things to him. He needs to know that he's appreciated for the things that he does. And I will say in my relationship, my husband does more domestically than I do. He just does a lot more than I do. But he needs to know that he's super appreciated for that. And that if I have any concerns or would like him to do something different, that I coach it in a way that does not seem like I'm criticizing. Okay. So give me an example of something that he does that drives you up the wall. <laughs> so my husband leaves the toilet seat up like, all, the time, all the time. How would you coach a man to put the toilet seat down then? <laughs> So give, give us a masterclass, Tara. Masterclass, okay. There's really two ways you can handle a situation with your partner. If your partner's doing something that you don't like, you can address it and then they can change it. That's great, right? Or you address it and they don't change it. Okay, so then you have to find some way to either accept it or come up with some alternative. So I'll tell you, I talked to my husband about it and this was not a pattern that he could just break. And he doesn't no. do it all the time. But we have young children who have literally fallen in the toilet because like, they don't necessarily understand to put it down. You know, It's a problem. So I had to either accept it, which I couldn't because we've got kids who would fall in the toilet. So I had to come up with an alternative. So we have self-closing toilets now. Ah. So it pulls down. Okay, Having to come up with alternatives. I could have kept nagging him. But the behavior wasn't changing. You know, it's not something he's doing to be malicious. It's just a behavior that wasn't changing. For our relationship, it was better for me to just find an alternative solution. And that's something we talked about. And he installed them. So i tell you something that works on me is a compliment works on me. I, mean, I have to say, I'm afraid I'm one of the world's untidy people. 
But if you say something like, oh, thank you for taking my plate and putting it in the dishwasher, I really appreciate that, rather than, oh, goodness, you know, you've put your plate in the dishwasher, but you haven't put mine in. The first one always works better with me. And I go, ah, right, yeah, that's one of the keys to a Mm -hmm. happy life. So waiting till the, you know, the one time in 10 million that I do it right and praising that. Positive reinforcement. Yeah, it's generally better than criticizing me for my failings. But that can feel like training a dog, you realize. I understand. (laughs) We do have a very well-behaved dog. (laughs) So for... In these romantic partnerships, we just can't criticize or nag or belittle our partners. We have to find some kind of other aspect. Another thing that's worked in my partnership is blaming silly things on an imaginary person. In our house, it's the dog. Yes. (laughs) A lot of couples have, you know, they blame the pets. My husband and I started this in the pandemic because we were stuck at home with three children for weeks on end. And we do it for the children and we do it for us. We're like, oh, who left the toys out? It must be Rick. We need to help him put up the toys. That's a kinder way to talk about an issue than you never pick up the toys or what's wrong with you that you're not doing that. So we have to be mindful of how we approach things with our partner. And if we're wanting to show respect for them, we need to be super mindful of that. Do you think there's a difference between love and respect? You say that women want love and men want respect. What is the difference between those two things? Egoris believes it's a difference of action. We show respect by our husbands by, and this is his words, not mine. I'll just say that. So we show respect by how we speak to our husbands, by not criticizing, belittling, but also showing respect by asking our husband for his feedback or guidance, you know, showing that we care and value their opinion. Um, He also suggests that women have sex with their husbands. One of the reasons why I think it's sexist, I don't totally see that as respect, but the love he suggests husbands show for women are complimenting women, telling them that they're beautiful, touching them, being with them. You know, it's just a difference of kinds of action. He also tells women as a form of respect is to take time to hang out beside one another instead of across one another. He talks about how men like to be with as a teammate, be sitting next to one another watching TV or sitting next to one another doing something. He suggests that as a way to discuss issues and come together shoulder to shoulder instead of facing one another. Mm, I have quite a few clients that will have a more difficult talk on a walk that they're doing together. And it sort of fills in the gaps as well, because you can walk for five minutes without actually saying something while I digest. But actually, if you're just in the kitchen, then one person thinks the conversation is over and they disappear. So a walk can be a good climb. Or actually in the car, it's often a time where you can be alone without having to worry that the children are going to be overhearing you as well. It's a good one. So any more information on attachment theory that we should give to people? The last thing I would mention for the secure attachment, we want to always try to get out of our comfort zone in terms of all of our attachments. If we're trying to get too secure, we have to recognize that our normal, what we are used to, isn't necessarily healthy. And I also always suggest that we think about our relationship models we grew up with, relationship models we see on television, movies, films, that if something seems familiar, it may not be healthy. We really don't see healthy relationships on sitcoms and movies because those aren't exciting. There's not drama or conflict. So being mindful that when you are in a healthy relationship or insecure attachment, it's not going to look like what you are used to seeing. 
And I think that's often difficult for my clients to grasp because, you know, they might think the book or whatever that they're reading or the, you know, their favorite TV show that it's different than what they currently have. So it must be healthy. That's not necessarily the case. So finding, you know, it can always be helpful to find healthy relationship role models in your life, like couples that at least from the outside appear to show love and respect to one another and being mindful of the three aspects of a healthy relationship. This is what I talk to with my clients at all, but a healthy relationship has to include love, trust, and respect. It has to include all three. It's like a three-legged stool. If it's missing one, it's going to fall over. And so those are the aspects to try to get to and be mindful of. And secure attachment is what we all want to get to. You know, if you find a right person who's secure, that may be a sign that you're secure, or it may be a sign that they're really good at pretending that they're secure. And so are you. (laughs) Can you be too secure? Can you get to the point where actually you're taking your relationship for granted and there are problems that you're not really noticing because you're too busy dealing with children falling into toilets? (laughs) That's always a good point. We never want to stop working on a relationship. We always want to be intentional. I mean, we always talk about relationships being work. It should be a work that we find joyful, not a work or a job. But, you know, think of your relationship as a hobby that you prioritize like a job. It should be something that we cultivate over time, especially if we go through tough times or seasons of drought in a relationship where, you know, someone is having to take up more of the slack. I have to be very intentional in my own relationship. Because my husband and I express love in different ways. He really wants me to compliment him, verbally praise him. And that just doesn't come naturally to me. If I want to show you that I love you or show you that I care about you, I'm just going to reach out and I'm going to touch you. So I have to be very intentional and remember, like, he needs to be complimented. And when he starts doing bids, you know, where he's like, I just mowed the yard today. You know, I really need to be like, great job. The yard looks amazing. And that's just not the norm for me. That's not natural for me. But when I do that, he feels so much more loved and appreciated. Yeah. Just because we get love one way doesn't necessarily mean our partner gets it. So that's a really useful thing to make us think about. There's a book on that as well called Five Languages of Love. I think it's Gary Chapman. Correct. We'll put that in the show notes. We'll also put the love is respect in the show notes. Obviously, there'll be all the details of Tara's course because you have a course on attachment theories, don't you? Mm-hmm. And I cover attachment theory in my book, which is called Wake Up and Change Your Life. So as I've invited you here to be a witness on what makes life meaningful, I have to turn the spotlight on you and ask you what makes your life meaningful? I mean, when I saw that question, I think about my daily basis is just helping people. That's what I love doing more than anything. I worked with a couple yesterday. I work with couples on a range of relationship issues, but this particular couple was having trouble with their sex life. They were a couple who had married young, had had no sex education, but being able to just just be there to allow them to ask me questions about what they could do differently or parts of the body and things like that. Like that's a real gift being able to show up and people be comfortable enough to ask me and share with their partner in front of really uncomfortable stuff. You know, couples who have been through infidelity, couples who are struggling knowing whether they should be together or not, whether they should work on it or not. But I get to be a witness for all of that. I get to observe and support and guide through that. Thank you. That is beautiful. 
This is where the interview has to end, unless, of course, you're a member of our supporters club, because we're going to reflect back on the interview. And we're also going to find out the three things that Tara knows deep down to be completely and utterly true. I'm looking forward to finding out that. If you want to join us, here's some details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.